Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. This is our sixth episode of our podcast that goes along with the chronological reading plan our church and others are going through, um, where we discuss the readings from the upcoming week from that reading plan. One thing that happened recently that was exciting is I found out about some of my my, uh, friends from back home that have been listening to it, so I just want to say hi to them and thanks for listening in. So we got two questions uh, this week, Pastor Clayton, that I like to put to you. The first one is kind of a more general uh, approach to Bible reading, but with children sort of a question. And so uh, one of the mothers in the congregation just was wondering, she wanted guidance on when and how to start sharing or reading some of these more graphic or ambiguous Bible stories, the stuff that they usually, for good reason, leave out of right. children's Bibles and vacation Bible school. Like, what is that, in your kind of experience or opinion, what is that, what could that look like or what uh, what guidance could we give on that? That's tough. I mean, one of the things that has always struck me is morbidly ironic is that the Bible story that's told on the walls of nurseries <laughs> and in preschool classrooms is Noah's Ark. It's also the most graphic. It is the most graphic and horrendous uh, <laughs> story in the Bible. But what we do, because there's animals in it, we uh-huh. uh, we put fun animals up and hope the children ask no questions. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that we're entirely wrong to do that. We shouldn't read the flood as a negative like act of God. It is a positive act of God, even though it's an act of judgment. Right. Mm-hmm. And there is there are consequences to that judgment. Um, but there are children at a certain age. Children are just not ready to hear about God drowning the world. Right. You know, it, the, the reality is Noah and his family probably had a lot of bodies that they sailed past in the ark. There was probably mm-hmm. an army of people banging on the sides of the ark, begging to be let in. Um, and that's hard. And a three year old is not ready for that. Right. Um, a, a teenager finding these stories in the Bible, having had them continually edited for them Mm -hmm. up to that point, will be furious and feel Mm -hmm. like they've been lied to. Um, so where between a three-year-old and a 13-year-old do you make that decision? I think that, um, I had, when I was a children's minister, the youngest child that I okayed to be baptized was just shy of six. And the reason for that was because she sat, uh, her name was Allison, and I asked her a series of questions about her faith, and her faith was real. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, for a six-year-old, or a four or five-year-old, a great maturity in the way that she, ex- like, approached her faith. Um, I would have probably told that mother that that child was ready for some of these stories. Mm-hmm. There are other children who are seven or eight that I don't think are ready right. uh, for some of these stories. The best person to make that determination is the parent. Right. Um, so when you send your children to children's church, it is unlikely that they're going to be hearing about the the graphic parts of some of these stories in the Pentateuch. And that's not because we're ashamed of them. That's because they're not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that that happens. And maybe maybe seven or eight is uh, the, the um, I don't know, the high end of when you should start having these conversations. But... But I do think it is child by child, and sure. the parents are the best people to make that decision. But that is a great question, it especially this mother having several kids. Right. That Those ages might not be the same, right? And if you're talking to one of them, if the children right. are like I was, you can be sure that child is right. telling well, then, those stories yeah. to the younger yeah. kids. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, that's that's a hard decision. Well, and I think it's also it's related to kind of the adult formational aspect of some of these stories that God doesn't want us to he insists that we not ignore the realities of these evils around us uh, and so for us to also have to reflect on them and read them for ourselves you know and then also to, to try and do that with our children in a way that you know I think a lot of parents struggle to have some of those difficult conversations with their kids you know, because these are terrible, some of these things, talking about rape or sexual assault, I mean that, you know, I've never been a parent, I don't know how, you know, how do you start to, you know, mm-hmm. talk about those things, or you just have to to be, try and be very wise, and um, 
but I think that, yeah, just taking our cue from the scripture of just saying, like, this is something that the people of faith need to be talking about. And for the good of the children themselves, right? Because there are evil people in the world that will try and take advantage, you know, or attack or exploit. And, and kids need to know that uh, probably a little earlier than we wish they had to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's the case. Our second question today is more specific to our Exodus readings from last week. And so I'll just read it for you. Uh, the asker says, I've heard you refer to Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15, which is when God is speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, as God's revealing of his name, Yahweh, to Moses, as if this is the first time the name is used, but it appears repeatedly in Genesis over 160 times. And Genesis 4.26 refers to people beginning to call on the name of Yahweh by the third generation, meaning the third generation after Adam. Uh, while it is possible Moses inserts the name into Genesis, since he's the author-compiler, <laughs> right. wouldn't it be more reasonable to assume that God is reintroducing his name to Moses as part of explaining that he really is the creator God known since ancient times and worshipped by his ancestors? The Especially the Genesis 4.26 passage, um, it is, I think, entirely reasonable for us to conclude that the patriarchs knew the name Yahweh or um, at least that that name was not entirely unknown and never revealed until this story. And yet the, the movement in Exodus 3 is significant. The revelation of his name is important. And I think that the reason that we reveal, we refer to that as the revealing of his name is what's happening in the big picture in Exodus. So the book of Exodus is, in many respects, Yahweh establishing his identity. What kind of God is he? We have stories that, that relate to that or answer that question or discuss it in Genesis, of course. But in Exodus, Yahweh is about to take on all the, the, the gods of the most powerful nation of the world. He's going to go head to head with you know, Ra and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. And he is in this point, like calling Moses and, and assuring him of who he is, revealing his identity to him. And that identity of a God who is, um, who is behind all of existence, who all these other gods, if they exist, depend on him for their existence. Um, the God who holds all things together is also the God who's going to save and redeem and rescue his people. And so what I, the reason we refer to this as the revealing of his name is it's attached to purpose that occurs throughout the book of Exodus. So it's as though he's telling us what his name is here, and then the rest of the book is telling us what that means. And I think it's entirely appropriate for us to refer to this as the revealing or unveiling of his name, because it's the place where God's people have gone to, um, to look at what is this name? What does it mean? What's important about it? It's all wrapped up in the Exodus story. And so um, he's absolutely right. This asker is absolutely right that, that the patriarchs likely knew the name Yahweh. And yet I will continue to refer to Exodus 3 as the revealing of God's name. Mm-hmm. Well, and as I'm about to talk about, I mean, one of the major, the major theme of Exodus is the revelation of Yahweh yes. to his people which, you know, includes the name itself, you know, what he's like, you know, his character mm-hmm. and, and his aspects. And, and so I think it makes sense to say that. Mm-hmm. I think that we're supposed to read the story that way. Um, I think God orchestrated things and Moses wrote them in such a way to evoke that thought or feeling. There's this moment of, um, I don't know, excitement as you read the burning bush story as Yahweh says, I am who I am, you know, mm-hmm. as, he, as he gives the name. Um, and I think that we're supposed to have that at the beginning. We're, we're getting a name for this, this God. Again, of course, if we've read Genesis, we're familiar with it. But, but what does it mean? Because it's, it's a weird word in the Hebrew. We talked about that last week. Right. Um, and it's going to be explained what exactly this name means throughout mm-hmm. the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of God is he? And I think that I think you're exactly right. That's what Exodus is about. And you can even say the rest of the Pentateuch is about. This next week, we'll be reading Exodus chapters 13 to 34, which is the majority of the book. And for most of us, these chapters will be very familiar and at the same time very unfamiliar. This is because Exodus is composed of two major sections. 
Part one is the story that we're all pretty familiar with, uh, Moses, the plagues, the Red Sea, and Yahweh giving the law at Sinai. But the second part, which starts at chapter 21, is the law that Yahweh gives, and this gets far less coverage in our preaching and in our study, and can be somewhat hard to get through uh, for reasons that we might explain later in the episode. But through these chapters, we see Moses lead the people out of Egypt after the Passover. They cross the Red Sea, and they witness Yahweh's final triumph over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Moses leads them to Sinai, the mountain where he saw the burning bush originally, and the people receive the Ten Commandments, agree to the covenant, and then proceed to break it by worshiping the golden calf. Moses delivers the first major set of laws, and he sees the design or the blueprint of the tabernacle. And as we were saying during the the question time, the main theme of Exodus, I think, is the revelation of who God is. Yahweh tells Moses multiple times that the point of the plagues is to reveal who he is to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. In Moses and Aaron's, I think, initial interaction with Pharaoh, when they asked for him to let the people go in chapter 5, Pharaoh says, I don't know who Yahweh is. Why uh-huh. should I listen to him? And that is the, the fulcrum kind of question of Exodus, because it's going to tell us who Yahweh is and why we should listen to him. And with that revelation of God, I think we also see a revelation of his people, meaning like who his people are, and connected to those, a revelation of where they will live together and in what time. And I'll briefly take each of those in turn. And so first, the revelation of who God is. Genesis establishes Yahweh as the powerful creator of the universe and the faithful friend of Abraham. And Exodus adds to our beholding of the creator's power and our comprehension that he is Lord over history, kingdoms, and war, not just the chosen family. And we see demonstrations of God's power throughout these chapters in the big famous ways that, you know, I hardly really need mention at this point, just that we see over and over again his power over the oceans, his power over the creatures, his power over darkness and light, all these different things. Yahweh is revealed to be holy. Uh, and Genesis had mentioned holiness a few times, but hadn't really fleshed out what exactly that means, and that will continue to happen as we go through the the books of the Torah. Uh, Leviticus especially will expand our understanding greatly, but here in Exodus we see that God is separate from his creation. He's not like anything else. Mm-hmm. He's overwhelming. He is dangerous to be rashly approached. Uh, Yahweh is revealed to be gracious and compassionate. He himself says as much in chapter 34, and we find several examples of his patience and provision for the people despite their distrust. And related to his compassion and graciousness, Yahweh is revealed as a generous host. And let's not miss that the Exodus starts off with a meal. Rules and expectations for festivals and feasts are relayed throughout the laws. In chapter 24, Yahweh invites Moses, Aaron, and the elders up for a feast after the people have confirmed the covenant. And part of the meaning of the sacrifices, especially the peace or fellowship offering, is that of sharing a meal with the Creator. Yahweh tells the people about their new home, the promised land, and how he will bless their food and drink in this land flowing with milk and honey. And so I think this idea of, of I don't know another way to put it, hosting, yeah. <laughs> this idea of hosting is yeah. just repeated throughout these chapters. So that's the revelation of God. The revelation of God's people, this comes in two streams, the royal priestly ideal and the rebellious grumbling reality. So Yahweh calls the entire nation to be royal priests in chapter 19. And throughout these chapters are different calls to be consecrated, to be set apart for Yahweh. It seems like maybe in this earliest stage, the firstborn sons were kind of the priestly figures. That will change as as the story goes on and it kind of focuses just on the Levites. But it seems like originally every firstborn son was was consecrated. And that continues to be the case throughout Israelite history as the firstborn son is is holy and has to be redeemed with a gift uh, to the sanctuary. Um, but just this idea that the, the people are holy, they're set apart for, for Yahweh. Uh, Aaron and his sons are robed in fine linen of luxurious hues, girded with gold and gemstones and crowned with Yahweh's holy name itself. I think when the New Testament hmm. apostles tell us that we are to put on righteousness and that we're clothed with Christ, these are the images that they're thinking of. And Moses also serves as an example of priestly intercession, standing between Yahweh and the sinful people and pleading for mercy on their behalf. 
But right alongside this beautiful ideal of priestly humankind, we get these pictures of utter distrust and rebellion, and which will only get worse as, <laughs> as the tour goes on. But the people grumble about food and water on the way to Sinai, which the Yahweh then graciously and miraculously provides. They grumble about whether Moses just led them out in the wilderness to die right before the Red Sea deliverance. And this all culminates in their worship of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, which nearly brings the whole Exodus project to an end. Uh, and Yahweh threatens to restart the covenant family just with Moses and uh, in, in his family. Third, the revelation of God's place. So Moses is shown the heavenly tabernacle, and he's given instructions for how to build a copy on the earth. Uh, and it's and we can talk more about this um, perhaps, but that it is a compact version of Eden itself with Aaron and sons playing what was to be the original role of, of humanity, what Adam and Eve were originally doing in the garden. They were tending to it. They were worshiping Yahweh. They were representing creation to the creator. That's what Aaron and his sons are doing. And we see that God's presence will travel with his people on the way back to Eden, on the way back to the promised promised land where they will all live together and fourthly and finally god's time and so the sabbath is reintroduced and expanded upon greatly in these chapters and i thought that it was worth pulling this out as its own theme just because genesis chapter 2 ends obviously the week of creation with the sabbath mm -hmm. but then we don't hear the word again until here i mm -hmm. believe or chapter 12 i think maybe is it talks about the passover being a sabbath right. but not until this section of exodus um, and so we see here that it is not just the day of the week of creation where God rested, that never ended, at least for God, but it's to be a weekly time of rest and celebration for God's people. And I think in a real way, it's meant to, we're meant to understand the Sabbath as being God's time, Eden time, injected into the middle of human history and busyness. It is a regular way of saying no to the spirit of Pharaoh that may still linger in their hearts. They will not mistreat their workers, the sojourners, their animals, or themselves through endless slave-like toil. So the Sabbath is a no to just the mistreatment and, and really the tyranny of sinful humanity. And it's a yes to uh, dwelling in the garden with the Creator. I have, I have several questions I'd love to talk to you about, if that'd be okay. Yeah. There's a lot. There's, <laughs> there's a lot here. There's a lot. And so I don't know how long we'll be here. Um, so in Exodus 19, we get this idea of a kingdom of priests. Mm. And Exodus 19 is just, it gets overshadowed so often because 20 is the, the Ten yeah. Commandments. But there's so much going on um, in Exodus 19. And so I'd love to ask, just when when we're thinking about like Yahweh declaring uh, that his people will be a kingdom of priests, what does that mean? So... It says, starting in verse uh, 3, Moses had gone up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, such and such and such, and now, if you will truly heed my voice and keep my covenant, you will become for me a treasure among all the peoples, for mine is all the earth. And as for you, you will become for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So what does that mean? Yeah, that's the question. I think that it is the expression of, of Yahweh's desire that while Aaron and his sons are the kind of actual priests, that all of Israel was to serve a priestly function for the world. You know, I think that we're... What does that mean? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get to it. A priestly function for the world. So, okay, so let's look and see what, what did Aaron and his sons do. They interceded on behalf of the people. They brought the fruits of, of human labor and civilization before the Lord. They served as living ideals of the the noble nobility, mm -hmm. the fullness of humanity that God had created in the image of God. Um, they they worked closely with the Creator. You know, not maybe as close as Adam and Eve, but as close as you could get at this point in time. Um, and then they ministered that his presence and blessing back out, you know, and so the priests, um, 
if you read, one of the things you realize is that the priests don't necessarily say very much, like especially in Leviticus, there's not a lot of like, and then the priest will say something. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's very different than like a Christian church service where the priest or the pastor never stops talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's references to like the priest giving instruction and mm-hmm. all that, but it seems like that's happening separately from the actual sacrifices and things that those mostly, it seems like, might, might have occurred in silence. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But one of the only things, like one of the only liturgical pieces of speech given to the priests is the blessing in Numbers chapter Mm 6. And so I think that that's a significant, that means something very significant, that the priests are instructed to carry the blessing of Yahweh out of the tabernacle and to the people. Okay, so then you blow that up to what does a whole nation doing that look like? You know, I think that that... (laughs) They did not have the same concept of like evangelism as we did, but it's something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something like displaying the or carrying the name really of the creator, not in vain, you know, before the peoples of the world so that they see, okay, you know, uh, Yahweh is the real God, Yahweh is a good and gracious and compassionate God. And I think that the 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 implied the implication there is that they would want to join into that and we see that happen throughout the story through individuals i mean we don't get like a you know the prophets promise you know like mass turnings of egypt egypt and assyria and these different things but we see you know rahab and ruth and and kind of one by one people turning to the covenant with yahweh um so i think that's part of what it means you know i think that ruling their kingdom as God intended Adam and Eve to rule Eden. Again, kind of displaying the wisdom of that so that other nations would perhaps want to follow in their footsteps or follow in their ways, right? And so, and this is kind of reading some modern things back into it, but we're modern people, so it's unavoidable. So like, even in these chapters, we're given rules that... I think indicate that the Israelites are not to misuse or exploit the land, like the natural world around them. Do mm-hmm. not boil a kid in its mother's milk. It says twice in these the sections of chapters, and you know it's like okay, what is that? What is that law about? And there could be, I mean, there could be multiple layers. There could yeah. be some very specific pagan ritual that it's referring to. Perhaps fair enough. I think there is this sense of like you can't consume the mother and the baby at the same time. And I say that because there are other laws in Deuteronomy about how if you come upon a bird with eggs, you can take the eggs, but you have to leave the bird, you know, or you can take the fruit from a tree, but you can't cut the fruit tree down, you know? So there's these just sense of like limits on consumption is really what Mm -hmm. it is. And kind of the wise husbanding, the wise cultivation of their land. You know, so you think about another country who doesn't do that. You know, Mesopotamia is a desert today because mm-hmm. they didn't cultivate their land wisely in the in ancient times. Um, you know, and so if those folks had said, hey, you know, Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey, maybe we should <laughs> adopt some of those practices and mm-hmm. let our fields lie fallow and let, you know, the mm-hmm. gleanings be collected by the poor and let, you know, some of these other things. And so I think, yeah, it wasn't a sense of like, I think later, like by Jesus's day, we see them thinking about it more in terms of like conquest, like a new David is going to come and then we're going to be kings of the earth because we've taken it all over in the style of Rome, which is like, okay, that's probably not what Yahweh meant, (laughs) you know, but more of an Uh attractional. And that's what we see in Revelation, that the kings of the earth come to Jerusalem. They're not compelled. They're not captured. They willingly come to Jerusalem and, and bring their treasures and bring the wealth of the nations to the king. All of that, I think, is what it would mean <laughs> yeah. for Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So um, the second commandment, or as we reckon it, the second commandment, um, has this this phrase in it. And I'd love to get your thoughts about it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And I think this is the most common question from the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God is jealous and he punishes children for the sin of the parents. Not even just that, to the third and fourth generation. That seems wrong and unjust. And I'd love it if you could kind of tell us what's going on there. Well, I think the jealousy piece, there's at least two kind of senses to that. And so again, back to this whole, they're, they're entering into a covenant with one another. You know, if you are a tiny city entering a covenant with the big city, like the big city is legally jealous for that relationship. Like they have, you have obligations to them and they have expectations for you. And so if you start trying to enter into an agreement with another big city, then your big city can kind of rightfully be jealous. And so mm-hmm. I think there's there's some of that, of just the, the way that the covenants worked, um, that Yahweh is jealous because he cares about his little city. He cares about his people, you know. <laughs> sure. And so they have obligations to him. He has care and compassion uh, and protection for them. I think also with this idea of covenant, you know, later I think rabbinic uh, interpreters kind of looked at this really as a, almost like a marriage ceremony as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's some spousal, and we certainly see that more drawn out by the prophets, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Hosea, maybe specifically, um, of the spousal idea of the covenant, Ezekiel. And so I think as well, there's just some, like spouses ought be jealous if the other spouse is going astray. Uh-huh. Like, I, I mean, that's the natural expected response. It would be weird if they weren't. Mm-hmm. Or it would, you know, it would mean that... It would tell you something about the relationship. <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if, a, if a wife finds out that her husband's fooling around on her and she's like, eh, well, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, then she must not really love him. Sure. She must not really care. She must be looking for a way out, you know. So I think that it's a comment, again, on on Yahweh's, the level of commitment that's happening, you know, between him and the Israelites. Like, Yahweh is in. Like, he is ride or die. Uh-huh. Literally for him, ride or die, because in a few thousand years, he will die. That's you know, true. For the sake of his people. Um, and so I think that's part of that. So with the, the punishment piece, I mean, there's been so much said that I... <laughs> that I hesitate to say anything just because of the weight of, of prior books and, and, you know, whole careers that have probably been built on, <laughs> on thinking about this question. You know, I think that, so I'm going to answer it in several, several bits. Yeah. <laughs> First, something that kind of just, I think about as a person, as a Bible reader, and have just been pondering is this idea of like, okay, so I'll punish those who hate me to the third and fourth generation but I will do kindness to the thousandth generation for my friends and those who keep my commands. So you have wicked generation one and God, Not I don't think these are hard and fast rules, but it's like, all right, the things you did, you know, I'm going to punish for four generations. But what if the next generation loves Yahweh? Like, I don't think it means he has to punish to the third and fourth generation because then I think it switches over to the kindness for a thousand generations. And so it's kind of like bad actions have consequences. And I know we all feel bad about that because we want to be able to do bad stuff without it affecting anyone else. But that's just not the world we actually live in. If you're a crappy person, that is going to trickle down to your kids. They don't have to fail in the same way. But I think we're all aware if we reflect for three minutes on our family cycles of dysfunction that we do some of the same things that our parents did, who do some of the same things that their parents did, who did some of the... Now, is that Yahweh's direct punishment on us? No, I don't think so. Just more that sin begets more sin. Yeah. And perhaps in the big picture that is, you know, in some form of punishment or a, a sentence of condemnation. I don't know. But it also doesn't have to be that way. Like, we can make choices to break those things break those things off from happening. You know, I also read that as in some sense almost being a, a, like a hopeful thing. Because he doesn't say that I will punish the wicked generations forever. Mm -hmm. It's to the third and fourth generation and then it's done. And then there's a chance for something new to happen. Um, You know, and I think, 
I was reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score a few years ago, which I highly recommend. I think mm -hmm. it was one of my recommendations a few years ago. It's not a Christian book, it's a, but it's about trauma and how the body carries trauma. It's a good book. It's an excellent book. Uh, and But one of the things he just talks about is, you know, uh, if a person experiences intense trauma, not only will that cause behavioral and psychological changes in them, it'll actually cause physical changes in their body and in their epigenetics, which will then be passed on to the next three to four generations of their children. You know, so like somebody alive right now, if their great grandparents experienced war or terrible abuse or something like, like they're still carrying the physical effects of that in their own bodies. Yeah. And I, I don't think, you know, that's a modern scientific conception. I'm not trying to read it back into Exodus, but just this idea of like, these things have multi-generational effects, but they don't have to go on forever. I mm -hmm. guess that's how I would read this is God is saying there are consequences for your actions. Wickedness is going to be punished, but you can make choices that break that cycle. And I also won't let things go on forever. Yeah, that's true. Like the rock of sin won't just keep rolling, you know, like three to four generations and it's over. You know, and I think we see this again, even looking forward to the exile. The exile was about three to four generations and then they came home. I mean, I read this to say that he's talking about three to four generations of people who are his foes, not one generation of foes and then three generation of helpless yes. innocence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, we were, we're preaching through Chronicles right now, and we even see that in the story of Josiah, mm -hmm. that his uh, father and grandfather right. turned away right. and, and sinned, but then God relents. Yeah. And and blesses Josiah because of his devotion and repentance. Yeah. Very neat. Very cool. I've got a couple other questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's this story, just kind of going through in order. Sure. In Exodus 24, that's wild. And it's just not talked about a lot. You and I have both talked about how crazy it is that this is not more of a, a standout story for preaching, teaching, it's just people it's reading. because it's hidden in between laws. It is. It's hidden between laws, and we tend to skip when we're uh, uh, uncomfortable with uh, what we're reading or if we find it boring. But can you just talk about this story? Because, again, just because it's it's been overlooked so much, I think, especially if people aren't very familiar with it, uh, those that are reading through the Bible reading plan are likely to come across it and... Would you just talk about it a little bit? I mean, I think that in some in 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 a major way, this story is an example of all of the themes, you know, because God welcomes Moses and the elders up for a meal. They see him, or they see something, you know. I think the text says specifically that they saw his feet. <laughs> Which either means that that's all they could see, or they didn't raise their gazes any higher. You know, that was they stopped at the feet and the uh, the sapphire pavement that he was enthroned upon, uh, which is just fascinating to think about. Yeah, and the prophets and, and different visionaries in the scriptures will kind of keep having, will kind of fill out more details about what you know, beholding Yahweh on his throne is like. But this is kind of the first glimpse of that. You know, we see God's people kind of, again, in the idealized form that these men are coming up. He doesn't uh, smite them for approaching. They're welcomed. They are priestly kind of representing the people, you know, to kind of seal the covenant with Yahweh. It's a special place. It's a special time. Like all, all these themes of Exodus, I feel like, are, are revealed here in Exodus 24. I think my favorite line, excuse me, my favorite verse is, uh, I think it's verse 12. And it says, and they beheld God and ate and drank. <laughs> that, that, that might be what goes on my tombstone. <laughs> um, he has beheld God and is eating and drinking. Well, no, but just this, this sense of, I mean, what a, what a, especially since a lot of these Old Testament stories are characterized and caricatured about being about an angry God who is trigger happy. And... I think Exodus 24 kind of puts the lie to that, that mm -hmm. it is more complicated than that. Um, that I think that, while I think this was a special thing, this was supposed to be kind of paradigmatic for what Israel's life was going to be. You know, like they were having this meal on the mountain, but then shortly thereafter they were going to build the tabernacle, Yahweh's presence would fill that, 
and then they would eat together all the time mm-hmm. you know basically is, is the idea so yeah i mean i think it's 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 a wonderful i think reminder you know and when i preached a sermon on this a number of years ago and i called it the law is for life you know because we can forget that that you you kind of slog through all these laws and rules and you're like oh my gosh like why blah 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 blah. it's like if we can remember the point <laughs> you know that these things were creating a structure for israel's life with the lord so that they could do exodus 24 like this is the goal all of it was to get to yahweh's table and and share a meal with him i think that that has helped me greatly just in both just having motivation to get through the law, you know, to read through it. <laughs> uh-huh. But I think also it really it really helps. It's a good perspective to then reflect on, okay, so I'm not an ancient Israelite. I'm not going, and I don't have to because Jesus has fulfilled the law. I don't have to directly obey these rules and regulations. But what is sort of the spirit of them and how can that be reflected in my life? Yeah. And what do I learn about Yahweh and what right, he cares right. about through them? Yeah. Very neat. Yeah, it's a very cool story. Oh, it's it's I mean, so good. It's when, so good. We both like to read the Bible in a way where we try to put ourselves into the story, right? And and imagine what what would be revealed to us, what would be happening, what would we be feeling if we were seeing and experiencing what these characters are. And uh, they saw God and they ate and drank. And I just wonder, I mean, we're not told that there's any speaking from, on the part of God here. Yeah. You know, they just saw his feet, right. you know, in the the... Can you imagine the tone of that meal? I think of deep reverence and uh, uh, at the same time, I think a joyful celebratory. Um, we're here and he's here. And yeah. the, the amazing confirmation that that would be about mm-hmm. how God is with them. Mm-hmm. So we have these incredible stories about God coming down. He speaks to the people from the mountain. Uh, he eats with the elders of Israel. He gives Moses laws. And then we come to this story that just seems too terrible to be true, um, where in Exodus chapter 32, the people somehow, after seeing the 10 plagues, Mm. after Yahweh leads them to Sinai Mm -hmm. uh, with visible signs, Mm -hmm. as he speaks to them from the cloud, as he eats with the elders, then they, they turn and they ask for a different God. Uh, can you help us understand what's going on with the golden calf? Well, you know, I think that uh, this is one of those stories that any honest reader would have an immediate kinship with because this is a story that's happened a million times over in various ways and might have even occurred for most of us earlier this morning. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, the Old Testament and we, you know, we've said this before and we'll keep talking, you know, because it'll just keep coming up. Like they don't, the ancient Israelites didn't tell stories in the same way that we tell stories. For us, the punchline happens usually at the end or close to the end, you know, the main, the most important part. Whereas often for them, it's like in the middle <laughs> or it can even be towards the beginning. Like they just told stories in a different way than us. And I think that this is another one of those where in some ways you would almost expect this to happen at the beginning and then they kind of work their way back up to a relationship or it happens at the very end and makes Exodus a tragedy. But neither of those things happen. It happens not quite in the middle, but uh, more or less kind of in the in kind of the middle parts. Again, sort of tucked in between law passages. You know, that I think that the Old Testament way of talking about sin and the issue of sin is through things like this, that, that humans men and women, even God's chosen people, just have this continual warpedness away from him, you know, away from truth and goodness and beauty and towards selfishness and, and hatred and, and uh, uh, indulgence, self-indulgence. So I think there's kind of two levels to what's happening here. I don't know, and we may just disagree about this, I don't know if I would say they were necessarily asking for another god, I think that the golden calf was meant to be an idol of Yahweh. It's like a representation of Yahweh, which again, he had just told them not to do. (laughs) Not only to not make any images to worship of other gods, but also not to try and make images of him. And so why a calf? I mean, there's, there's, you know, historical reasons for that. I mean, 
there are prominent cow gods in Egypt, and so that could be part of what's happening there. I mean, we, I think throughout the ancient Near East, cows and bulls kind of served as uh, yes. images of the divine. And even throughout the Hebrew Bible, I mean, the expression, he raises up a horn for us, you know, is this idea of like horns of an ox, you know, or whatever else kind of being raised in victory. Not that those are idolatrous, that's an idolatrous phrase, but just that this idea of a horned bull kind of being an image of strength and power and everything else makes sense to them culturally. Yeah. And so I think that that's maybe why, you know, a golden calf uh, specifically or a golden bull um, that was meant to be an image of Yahweh. But then I think there also seems to be a sense in which they did that and then they engaged in uh, sinful behaviors. Uh huh. <laughs> Not like cool, fun partying, but like people are overdosing and, you know, probably getting what? assaulted partying. <laughs> like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like unbridled, you know, licentious, licentious terribleness that, because yeah. again, think about all the feasts and the wine and everything else. Yahweh is no enemy of partying hello jesus at the wedding feast in cana but like whatever they were doing was way beyond you know uh above and beyond any kind of righteous kind of joyful celebration of of god and and the covenant and and the goodness of creation it was bad and i think really almost because it sounds like a battle you know when moses comes down joshua heard the sound of the people as it shouted Mm -hmm. and he said to moses the sound of war in the camp and he said, not the sound of crying out in triumph and not the sound of crying out in defeat. A sound of crying out, I hear, which is a little ambiguous, but I think it means that for Joshua, a seasoned warrior, they just fought off Amalek a few chapters ago. Like, this wasn't a happy party. Like, no. I think something more like a riot, you know, was beginning to happen and it and they were hearing screams. I mean, that's, you know, that's what's happening. So screams are not characteristic of a happy party. No. Um, and so then they have to, to uh, exert, to our modern sensibilities, uh, extreme kind of uh, immediate judicial control. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the just speaking to the, and we probably do have very small disagreements here, and I think that's okay. Um, I think there is something about, it's not just Yahweh, because uh-huh. the, the, words, the words are plural. Yeah. Um, when they're asked to make us gods, these are your gods, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. These are all plural things. That's and true. so there's some, I think that you're right that Yahweh is supposed to be involved, but mm-hmm. there's this, this reverting to like a more comfortable expression of religious devotion. Mm-hmm. And the word revelry even contains the ideas of um, what will later become associated with Baal worship, which is right. yeah. um, just having a lot of sex with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so the the these are people that have been waiting for 40 days, right, for Moses. Mm-hmm. They probably think that God has killed him right. because he's been up there. They've seen all this thunder and fire and all these things. The mountain is on fire. Right. And uh, uh, and so they want something they can see. Um, you know, this, this, this is your God who will go before you like Yahweh had mm-hmm. gone before them. And so I think you're right that it is supposed to be connected to Yahweh, but then from that also other gods, which to them seemed entirely reasonable, except that they had just heard from God the Ten Commandments, right? Well, you know, and that brings us to, I think, an important point that is just worth remembering that, so the ancient Israelites were monotheists, meaning they were to worship Yahweh, their creator and covenant God. But that does not mean that they weren't aware that other gods with a lowercase g, you know, spiritual beings existed and were real because throughout the Old Testament, that is the understanding that is reflected. Like the gods of Egypt were real, you Mm -hmm. know, for for Yahweh to fight against and and triumph over. The gods of the peoples in the promised land are real, you know, and need to be resisted along with the, the people themselves. And so, yeah, it's not so much that Yahweh is the only God that exists. He's the only God worthy of worship and allegiance and the only God that can save his yeah. people. Uh, he is, when they when they call him the God of gods, you know, what they mean is there are other spiritual beings. And he's the God of and them. And he's also the God of them. <laughs> you know, like he created everything else. the creator and maintainer of everything else. 
And so, yeah, I think that makes sense that, that with Yahweh, with other spiritual beings. I mean, later, you know, the New Testament refers to there being angelic beings at Sinai, and the rabbinic literature has a lot to say about that. And so, you know, did the elders just see Yahweh on the mountain, or did they see others as well? That's wild. You know, and so... <laughs> Could you imagine? You're chilling out. There's Yahweh's feet and all these, and like, all, spiritual the host, beings around. The heavenly host. Just you standing know. there watching you eat. <laughs> <laughs> or doing their own thing, you know. I don't know. Playing backgammon, whatever. I, I prefer the image of them just standing there watching them eat. You'll with, like with, that meal. <laughs> with all four faces. <laughs> all the eyes and the wings. Oh, man. Who knows? How, ma- how amazing like with Abraham. That? Well, that is a picture of the sacrifices, right? <laughs> right that they're right. they're eating with Yahweh, yeah, the yeah. priests acting as Yahweh. Well, anyway, so all that to say, yeah. and of course we're we're speculating a little bit sure, here, but that course. it's not it's within the realm of possibility in terms of the universe that the scriptures are creating for us to say that they could have seen other uh, spiritual beings, angels, you know, along with Yahweh, and so it would it would have made. A lot of sense just to their immediate experience, you know, to try and capture that in an idol. But then, right, the broader kind of Middle Eastern, ancient Near East and Egyptian cultures were obviously, they worship many gods uh, and had allegiance to many gods. And so Israel coming out of that, you know, mm-hmm. would probably find it hard to make a switch, you know, if they had been worshiping many other gods or just been around that. Yeah. The... Uh... Just a couple more questions, or one more big one, I guess. The tabernacle. Uh-huh. So, um, we are more familiar, I think, usually with the temple, right? It's referred to, it's around in the New Testament, right? It's 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 referred to throughout the prophets. Yep. Um, the tabernacle is not present in Genesis, you know, which yeah. is the 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 maybe the book of the Torah that most of us know the best. Mm-hmm. So. What are we supposed to do with this idea of tabernacle? Like, what what is its significance? Why is there so much devoted to it? Because it's a lot. When you're reading yeah. Exodus, you spend the last 10 chapters of the mm-hmm. book just hearing about the details of the tabernacle. Yes, yes. Um, and it's, it's just so boring, right? <laughs> I mean, who wants to read an architectural... Um, instruction set for, for 10 chapters. I love the tabernacle stuff. And so, and so (laughs) I know that you do. That's why I'm setting up the question this way for you. Um, but, uh, uh, what, what in the world are we supposed to do with this? So this was a treasure. This was a house of treasure. And so probably a point of pride for them. And so I think the lengthy descriptions are part of like, you know, just, this is the thing we did, not in like a sinful, prideful way, but um, in response and obedience to Yahweh's commands. You know, I think that potentially part of the reason why it's reproduced in such details because, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disputing that Moses was the primary author uh, for these books, but I think we, I mean, we have to acknowledge that some editing took place afterwards. We can talk more about that if people have questions. Still within the, the sphere of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Yes, I'm Certainly not denying that. But, so, let's say, you know, the scholarly consensus, I'm not saying this is true, but, let, you know, is that the Torah kind of arrived at its final shape a century or so after the exile to Babylon. And so the tabernacle does not exist anymore. The temple that does exist at that point is a shadow copy of what Solomon had built. And so I think in some sense, it's like they're wanting to build a virtual tabernacle. Mm-hmm. like. Here's all these details that you can imagine it, even though it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Which, indeed, is the exact same function it serves for us, because right. we've never seen the tabernacle either. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so that's kind of the, those are kind of more literary, maybe some literary reasons. I think theologically, you know, the tabernacle, the imagery is so rich that when you read these things, I just encourage you to take it slowly and to think Eden. <laughs> To think Genesis 2 every step of the way. Because the it just like I said, the imagery here is just is is very rich in terms of the plants, the trees, the animals, the presence of cherubim, angelic beings, the colors, again, the humans and kind of their their original priestly role there. You know, and so that this is a place of beauty that where God meets with people. Like that mm-hmm. is the that is the central idea. So 
let's think about that. You know, let's think about that. Um, and and to really try, and I know not everybody, you know, uh, is is our visualizers. They can't necessarily picture things. But to really try to, like, try to picture the high priest's outfit. And if you struggle, Google it. There's yeah, plenty of illustrations. Yeah. A lot of our study Bibles have pictures right in them. You know, and just and think about that. You know, think about what it would be like to wear that. Think about what it would be like to see the high priest, you know, uh, wearing that and, and ministering and and just a lot of sensory details. I mean, we get a lot of stuff about the smell and the fragrance of the incense and, and the different things. So just trying to, I, honestly, I really do think that part of the purpose is for us to be able to create a virtual tabernacle in our in our heads to kind mm-hmm. of imagine and, and to place ourselves there. And, and Exodus points this out, the book of Hebrews, I think, expounds on this a lot, is that you know, this is an image not only of Eden or like what Eden w- would have been, but really it's an image of the reality of God's throne room Yeah. now, you know. And so, uh, you know, you think about the incense altar right in front of the Holy or the, the Ark of the Covenant and the smoke of the incense going up. It protects the priest, the high priest from danger, you know, and you think about how Jesus as a high priest has already passed through death, but then the revelation talks about how the prayers of the saints rise as this incense, you know, in the presence of God and, and that Jesus is interceding for us. So his prayers also rise. And so, you know, it's just, or the lamp, the lampstand is in the shape of a tree, you know, and I think Look we're meant to see lines. the tree of life, you know, and that the light, uh, you know, and so it seems like the lamps, it wasn't quite like a candle, like we would, maybe there were like reflective there were reflective gold panels behind the flames so that it was a one-directional lamp. Um, and you can Google ancient mirror lamps to kind of see what I'm talking about. But that the light of this thing is shining on the bread on the table, which represents the Israelites. You know, so just again, the symbolism of God's blessing, God's life, you know, shining on Israel. You know, anyway, so it just... I mean, I've read things like the rabbis talking about even the descriptions of like looping the panels together and like the, the, the frame and all these other things, you know, just that there's wisdom to think about, you know, sort of mending the universe, mending the cosmos is, a, is an important idea in modern Judaism. And so thinking about that for us, like we are in our good deeds and our whatever acts of stewardship and kindness, we're trying to knit the fabric of the, the universe back together in the ways that sin has has torn it apart enjoy it just try and enjoy it you know <laughs> and trust or that it's there for a purpose it's there for a purpose good. and if you're a practical minded purpose person sit there and think about what would it actually be like to build this thing i mean i think that's a valuable thing to think mm-hmm. like how big would it have actually been you know and just all the different bits and pieces uh involved in it i think that's that can be worthwhile too just in terms of trying to put ourselves there and and Obviously, with the end goal of meditating on the reality of God coming to us, yeah. uh, I mean, as Christian people, you know, in the Gospel of John is saying that yes. Jesus tabernacled among us, you know, we have beheld his glory and he's tabernacled among us. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. I never want you to I made a self-deprecating make comment. assumptions about how I feel about your intelligence. Because <laughs> I think you're adequately intelligent.